Thanks, everybody, for tuning into Bar Crawl Radio. We have conversations at neighborhood bars with people doing good work for their community. And we're happy to be sponsored by Magic Mind. It's a no-caffeine, all-natural, two-ounce, juicy drink that starts off my morning with a wakefulness that helps me get my college papers read and graded and each week's BCR podcast edited. And I just learned that Magic Mind has cordyceps. Uh, It turns out it's a mushroom that aids with attention and energy, and I think it helps my lawn bowling game. I beat the younger players this weekend. That's good. At the end of this program, Rebecca will tell you how you can get a discount on your next order of Magic Mind, so pay attention to that. Okay, on with today's program. A lot about my great-grandparents and my Nachum and Nachum and Alan's uh, grandparents who were immigrants to America and about some experiences in common we probably have. I think my Hebrew is better than my than my great-grandmother's English was for what oh, I did. Okay. That's for oh, sure. I see, I see. Okay. <laughs> that is for sure. <laughs> Hi, Nahum. Hi, Nahum. Hi. This, is, this is wonderful and weird. <laughs> Life is weird and sometimes yeah. wonderful, too. Nahum Schnitzer is my cousin. Ariella Dubrowin is my cousin once removed. Both have raised their families in Israel, Nahum 40 years, Ariella 20. The conflict in Gaza has encased their world in ways that I, nor I'm sure most of you listening to this podcast can fully get. Ariella wrote me about a month ago. She was troubled about a recent program I posted called I Want to Say Kaddish which presented both the intense protests in the U.S. against the actions of the IDF and the general obliviousness of winter break tourists in New York City. So I thought it'd be a good idea to invite Nahum and Ariella to join Rebecca and myself for a conversation. But I sensed that I did not want to talk about the never-ending conflict. Rather, It would be more useful, I thought, positive, connecting, life-affirming, to learn about their lives in their chosen country, which, as you will hear, they so dearly cherish. So, this will be a program about two Israeli Jews, originally from the northeast region of the United States, living within trauma, in a place that fulfills them. If you've been watching the news, you must have an opinion about Israel and Gaza. This conversation is not intended to change those feelings. It doesn't even address those feelings. Rather, we want to meet two Israelis living in a place they love, a place that's crumbling. and I'd like to introduce you to Nahum Schnitzer. Uh, I knew Nahum as a child growing up in Wilmington and Roboth Beach, Delaware. Michael, as I knew him then, is my cousin. In 1984, he and his wife, Bracha, moved from Washington Heights in New York City to Israel. Now they live in Ma'al Adumim, within the West Bank. They had five children, 
Three sons served in the Israeli Defense Force. Two were called up recently and are back. And two daughters who served in the Civilian National Service. And now, seven grandchildren. Naum studied Jewish education and rabbinic studies at Yeshiva University and guidance counseling at Hunter College. Retired, he now works part-time at a local high school as a guidance counselor and librarian. He teaches an adult Bible class and writes and gardens and bikes and travels. Rebecca McCain here. Ariella de Rowan is the daughter of another of Alan's cousins. Ariella is a lactation consultant, and she has had an online store for pregnancy and breastfeeding products for over 16 years. She and her husband Shlomo have a son who is in 12th grade in Jerusalem. They have lived in Gush Etzion, a suburb of Jerusalem, for the past 20 years. Ariella grew up in Connecticut and earned a BA at George Washington University and a Master of Social Work at Columbia University. She worked in Philadelphia and suburban Washington, D.C. for American Jewish communal and educational organizations until moving to Israel in 2003. All right. Just, I just want to say thank you, Nahum and Ariella, for joining us um, for this conversation that is important to Alan and me. And we sense that many of the, our listeners will want to listen to this podcast, and it will be important to them as well. Um, it should be noted that it is Thursday, uh, February 8th. It is 8.30 Israeli time, so thank you so much. I don't know. I'm like My bedtime's 9.30, so you guys, are, I really appreciate it. Okay, so just to say this is not going to be a political conversation or a debate on this ongoing conflict. Um, but an attempt to learn about your lives in Israel with the understanding that you two are individuals and do not represent or reflect anybody except yourselves. What's the weather? What's the weather where you are? Are you, are you in similar weather patterns? Um, similar. It's a little bit warmer here. I live in the Judean desert outside of Jerusalem. Um, Ariella lives slightly south of Jerusalem, more in the hills. It was a nice, warm, sunny day today. Yeah, what was the temperature? High 60s, something like that, okay. maybe low 70s. I'm just looking All to right. see if my app will tell me. But yeah, somebody said 65 was the high today. Nice. Right. Nice. What's your favorite time of year? Um, I don't know. I think it's the same as in the U.S. I really like spring and, and autumn, where it's sort of, it's not too hot and it's not too cold. But where I live, we get snow generally once a year. In just enough to look pretty out the window and then melt the next melt in the next few hours, which as far as I'm concerned is the perfect kind of snow. Because okay. you're high up, right? Where I live is very high. We actually have a lookout point that is a thousand meters above sea level that people from all over come to use to look. I at. think a lot of people won't didn't know that. I didn't know that. That it snowed in Israel. Only in certain areas. Yeah. Okay. Tell us about your neighborhood, your city, where you live. What's it like? How does it compare to places that you grew up in in America? Well, I grew up in the country. I grew up outside of Wilmington, Delaware. I live now in Ma'ale Adumim, which is a city of 40,000 people between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. Um, actually, I once upon a time lived in Manhattan for 10 years, but that was uh, over 40 years ago. It's very different. I live here in a community. It's a neighborhood that has the atmosphere of a fairly close-knit community. Um, we share a lot. We do a lot of things together. The human relationships are quite close. 
And um, even in the town of, of Malay Dumim, it's the kind of it's not the kind of place where um, you can walk around and not run into somebody that you know. It's yeah. a small town. Yeah, it is. Well, that's but, but considering that it was when we came here in 1986, we moved to Malay Dumim in 1986. There were 7,000 people here. It's grown tremendously. So you're like one of the founders. I won't say we're one of the founders, but in our particular neighborhood. There are now over 500 families, I believe, and we're family number 70. Wow, so all families are numbered as to when they arrive. Yeah, well, yeah, only only the old timers like us. Now people don't do that anymore. But uh, right. it was when we came here, we were the 70th family to move in. Right. And is it a growing community? Is it? Uh, are people still moving in? Sure. Ariella, how about you? I live in a town that is around 550 families. Um, so a very small town. Very small. We have a new neighborhood that's being built that is going to add around 170 families. So that's going to be a big percentage growth. The town um, has two different sides. One that's the new neighborhood, but pretty soon it's not going to be the new neighborhood anymore because there's going to be a newer neighborhood. We live on the older side, which has um, less Anglos and more Israelis. Because of the nature of the of the town, the smallness, um, I don't know everybody, but I know that I know almost all the families with kids around my son's age, and our street is very tight knit. Um, I was thinking this morning about how where I grew up, even though it was suburbia, it was a much bigger suburb than where I lived. My parents never let us walk alone outside to a friend's house and things like that. Um, and here, kids from five years old go to the playground by themselves. It, it's interesting that uh, when we ask, what is, you know, like, how big is your, where do you live? You use it in terms of numbers of families. And I think mostly, I mean, when you say, what's the population of New York? We don't say, you know, how many families live here. Is, is there something Israeli about that, about counting a population by family? Not in absolute numbers. And when you asked how many people live in my city, yeah. it's by it's by numbers. It's forty thousand about. But when you ask about a smaller community, um, it's 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 true. It's it, families are very significant. We have. Um, it has to do with the way that people here are not just numbers. People here have. Um, we know our neighbors. We're close to our neighbors in in many cases. We um, we deal with them on many different levels and um that's that's part i think that's part of israeli society yeah so that and, may be true about any small city in any part of the world it's like if you're in a small town with mm-hmm. just 500 families you're going to get to kind of know know people more than in new york city it's very different because even in the building that we live in um probably are bigger than the the village or the town that you live in ariella so and I see people... more than 500 families in your building. Oh, yes, easily. No, 500 families. We have 23 stories. There's probably 10 apartments on each, at least 10, maybe 20 apartments on each story. But I bet a lot less Not families as big, yeah. in, your, yeah, a lot in of... your apartment building have six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids. Uh-huh. That's true. That's a difference. That's right. true. Yeah. So that's large true. families. <laughs> Large families. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I have an only child where kind of we're unique. The average family here has at least four or five kids. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I, I had a question about you using the word Anglo because you've used it a couple times, Ariella. Um, 
the Anglo refers to Americans? English speakers. It's English a, speakers. I mean, Malcolm could probably explain this better than me. They used to call <laughs> Americans Anglo-Saxons. That was very funny. Like that was ridiculous. <laughs> All of a sudden, we became wasps without the P. Um, <laughs> it's it's um it's a little bit ridiculous because it's true that we're um we are English speakers, um, but that's only. No, that's part of our identity. I mean, it's not It's not all of it. The English-speaking community is majority American, but there are lots of South Africans and British and Australians also. Right. Is there still a great influx of Americans coming to Israel, making the Aliyah? A good number. A good number. And are they welcomed? Um, I think so. I mean, in our neighborhood, it's interesting we've had an influx of couples close to our age or maybe a little bit older people who have retired mm. and they've come and um we've made a number of new friends but it's it's interesting because we we came to live in israel nearly 40 years ago and it's not just that we're obviously more acculturated in terms of being israelis and we've raised children here and families and gone through a lot of Israeli experiences. But I think the America that um, we left was very different from America today. I think that's true of me too, and I've only been here 20 years. If we came to visit you, where would you take us in your towns? In our towns, I don't know if I would take you anywhere. Um, But, I mean, we don't have any restaurants or museums or anything. We have a little supermarket, and I don't think that's where I would take a tourist. but in our area, in our region, which is right out, which is outside of Jerusalem, there's a museum about the history of Gush Etzion. Explains the history beautifully, and we also have a winery where I love to take people for lunch. Right. If you came with your grandchildren, we have an awesome playground. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> if I wanted to show you someplace strictly outside, I could give you the vo- uh, the view from our balcony. Uh-huh. We have a large, uh, you would call it an English, a veranda. And you can see the Judean desert. You can see Jerusalem in the desert in the distance. You can see the towers, Church of the Ascension of the Ascension. There's also uh, Augusta Victoria Hospital, both on Mount Scopus, and right past one of the mountains. Um, we can pr- cheat and pretend that we can see it. You can see the tower of Hebrew University, which is a little bit obscured. So it really, it's, it's a lovely place. And elsewhere from my neighborhood, you can see the mountains in Jordan right across past the Dead Sea. Ariella, you're still working, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Naham, you see yourself as retired, but I know you're still busy. So um, you're probably both very busy. Can you tell us what a normal day is like for you two? Okay. Um, I'm self-employed. My schedules really vary from day to day. Since the war here has started, I've really tried to anchor my day with different volunteer activities. Spend a lot of time, you know, doing what every self-employed person does, answering emails. And in Israel, I think WhatsApp is much more common than it is in America. Because I'm a lactation consultant and I sell breastfeeding products, sometimes I have a home visit with somebody. Um, Sometimes I have a Zoom meeting with somebody, things like that. Um, And um, very often in the last four months since the war started, um, I'm either making a meal for a family with a soldier or that I've been thinking about this a lot um, in preparation sort of for up this podcast, that even though um, 
not all of my activities are necessarily war related. Something about the war happening has inspired a sense of volunteerism. So I've done a lot more volunteering. Like we have friends in the, in our town who um, have a son and a father who are both very sick. And I've been driving uh, the father once a week, either to or from dialysis. It's not really related to the war, but something about the fact that I was volunteering a lot sort of got, got everything all swept up in that. Um, I helped uh, for a long time a friend who has a severely disabled daughter and a son who was wounded in the war um, to grocery shop. Do you find just to you, save her the time? Do you find you doing those kinds of uh, helping others uh, more now than you did before? A hundred percent, a thousand percent. I think so. Is that what you meant by when you said it's, it's kind of all wrapped up in that? This fact that you started volunteering for the war effort and then now you're also just helping people yeah it's sort of like just combating evil by putting as much good into the world as i can nahum what do you have for breakfast oh well well let's let's long before breakfast (laughs) um i start every every morning going to uh, synagogue services um that's the, the first thing that i do and um after that um the um, and one of the things that's changed uh, with the war, I have to say that um, I um, I you know I, I learned to say my my prayers when I was a kid, but there's a difference. I feel that every every prayer is very very different now. It's it's more like the prayers of a Yom Kippur than a regular day, mm-hmm. it, because it's. Um, we're up against a lot, and um, there's a lot to pray about. That's, uh, and besides that, we end up every every service three times a day with saying a chapter from the Book of Psalms, different one sometimes every day, sometimes the same, um, uh, in um, for the captives, for the hostages in Gaza. A prayer for. Um, that uh, they'll be released soon, and um, and that God should watch after, watch over them. So that's um, that's how the morning begins. What do I have for breakfast? Very often oatmeal or yogurt, and um, I try and fit some Torah study into my morning. I work four days a week um, for a few hours a day. I work in a local high school, the yeshiva high school. It's a, a boys' school, um, 7th through 12th grade. And before the war, I was working there six hours a week as a librarian. I'm still working as a librarian, but uh, since uh, a good um, a good portion of this, the staff was mobilized, I started working as a guidance counselor. I studied counseling at Hunter College in New York. And um, didn't do very much with it in the past twenty years, but uh, I'm I'm back to doing that, even though the the guidance counselor is back in school. And I also tutor a number of of students that are having difficulty in English and history and Bible and in various subjects. Um, so that I'm I'm finding that tremendously satisfying. Mm-hmm. And I also do volunteer stuff. This morning I. Uh, I took a neighbor to um, radiation treatment, um, but uh, we we do what we can. We do what we can to make 
um, to make the world a better place. It's, uh, my wife is also very involved with, um, with various volunteer things. I was volunteering at one point translating testimonies of people who experienced the massacre on October 7th. Um, and uh, I have to say that was very difficult, even though that what I was dealing with, the material was not that graphic, but it was much, I was much closer to the place than I wanted to be. Yeah, I, we, uh, uh, we haven't really put together questions about that specifically because we really wanted to focus on you two rather than that, that, that horror that happened. But um, that, that horror that happened is a very mm -hmm. important part of our lives today. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's not something that can be ignored. It's not something we're, we're living. I mean, I mean, thank God I have a good life. But I've had two boys in the army. One of them just got out last week. Um, it's, I've had, we've had two funerals of boys that I knew in our neighborhood, in our community. Since October 7th? Uh, right. Um, there are at least three wounded soldiers from this neighborhood. There may be more that I don't know about. And uh, there are, I, I just saw a young man that I know that's on leave for a few days who's, um, he's, uh, he was in Khan Yunus yesterday. So this is, we, we try and live normally, but our lives are not normal. Right, right. Um, I guess I should have known that the conversation was going to be in the in, in direction of the emotional trauma that you all are, are living in. At the same time, we do want to get a sense of what your life is as a normal life. I mean, you're living... You're living your lives in, in, in this country. I don't think that many people in this country kind of see you as Israelis as, you know, real people because all this stuff that's going on kind of gets in the way of seeing the person. And that's kind of the reason we're doing this is to get to the person. So I'm going to ask you, Nahum, you told us that you have a garden. Mm -hmm. It's a very normal thing as a garden. I remember your father's garden. That That's huge right. garden that he had. He had a, even had right. a tractor of some sort uh, in the back. You had to go through like a forest to get to it. Um, does your garden compare to his? Uh, my my, my <laughs> uncle, my uncle have, Charles. I have a little, uh, we call it a garden here, but you would call it in, um, in the States, you would call it maybe a yard. And it's more of the kind of yards that people have in Brooklyn rather than way out in the suburbs. Well, I have room for a couple of trees. I have some flowers. I have a bench, a little bit of grass, a small grapevine, and a little a little table with three chairs. It's very cozy. Um, I, um, For me, I always say that gardening is much cheaper than going to a psychiatrist. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, for me, it's a, a big... Um, it's a big uh, a big help. It certainly saved me during Corona that I didn't feel locked up in the house all the time. But it it cannot be compared with the two and a half acres that I grew up in um, as a child in Wilmington, Delaware. Yeah, yeah, right for off sure. The Dupont not. Estate there. Yeah. So, what do you do for entertainment? Um, do you? I, I guess there's not a movie theater in your 
town, Ariella. Um, on Tuesday, went to Jerusalem. My husband took a few hours off of work, and my son came and met us straight from school. And we went into Wonka, ah. which was so much fun. And I was actually thinking, um, in anticipation of this call, uh, Alan, that you might, as a film uh, professor, um, get a kick out of the way they told us we have to be aware of where the shelters are in case there's a, a rocket attack. They said, don't create a comedy, no, don't create a drama, and don't create a comedy. Just um, sit where you are, cover your head with your, bend down, cover your head with your hands, like what I heard my parents did in the 1950s when they <laughs> to prepare in case for Russia. Like, that's really going to help that. me. And stay there for 10 minutes. Theater we were in, of course, because it was Wonka, was full of small children. We were the only family there that came without small children. Um, and I was thinking that I cannot imagine taking that if I were a mother with small children taking that kind of responsibility. Well, in Jerusalem, there are really hardly any rockets. So it's not a real consideration in our day-to-day -day lives. But it, like Nachum said, it just, it, it affects everything. It's there. They're watching this like fun movie. And at the beginning, they say, turn off your phones. Oh, and by the way, if a rocket attack happens, this is what you have to do. Wow. I would suggest that it has scarred those children. It was all written and not announced. So oh, I that's better. Small children. I actually wondered as we were watching the movie how these small children who didn't speak English were going to get anything out of this movie since there were some. I mean, <laughs> it's colorful and musical and lovely. But I think the average age of the kids in that room did not... Um, it was not of kids who could read the subtitles fast enough. Our kids grew up here when, um, in a period of the of the bus bombings, when um, there were suicide bombers on public buses, and it was a very I remember for me it was very tense. Um, but we always, and I think Israeli families, it's not an unusual thing. We decided that at home it's going to be happy we're going to have birthday parties and we're going to have a music playing and we're going to have a positive atmosphere at home and somehow i think that our kids grew up without major emotional traumas even though um i think it it um i think it had a cost maybe on us but um but i think the kids had a great um a great uh, upbringing and one of my sons, who I think is the most Americanized of all of them, um, was working in a Jewish camp in, in the States when he was in his early 20s. And he called up, he said, I just want to tell you, I really appreciate it that, you grew, that, that, um, that we grew up in Israel. That, that creates a great, a great uh, segue into my next question, because you did not grow up in Israel. You mm -hmm. grew up in Connecticut and Delaware, <clears throat> and you had young lives in New York City, et cetera. Um, so you began your lives in, in the United States. What was the decision to move to Israel? I um, grew up in a very Zionist home. My father's brother made Aliyah, moved to Israel 40 years before I did. Um, we visited a lot to visit him, but also to visit Israel. Um, and 
I kept saying someday I'm going to move to Israel. It was always in my life plan. And um, there were two different points that I think to as the triggers for when I decided to move. One was um, I was in Israel. I was getting together with friends who I knew um, from Washington, D.C., where I was living, but who happened to be in Israel at the same time. And we got together at a restaurant. And somebody who had already moved to Israel said to me, you know, it's very strange. You want to meet a man who wants to live in Israel, but happens to be living in the United States now? If you want to meet a man who wants to live in Israel, maybe you should live in Israel. So that really spoke to me as I was um, very, very frustrated on the dating scene. And at the same time, um, there was the second intifada here. And I know this is going to sound really, really crazy to most people, um, but I just felt like other people were suffering here to make my someday possible. And that was really unfair. That the our enemies here are trying to terrorize us, to really make it so terrifying that anybody who can would leave. And by just by living here and by being here and making our lives happy, um, we are defying them. And I felt like other people were doing that for me so that I could have this tourist, this place I wanted to go on every vacation and this someday dream. And it wasn't fair. So I decided I had to join the people who were doing that. In a sense, I think that a lot of my education prepared me for Israel. I went to a Jewish high school in Philadelphia, Akiva. We had Jewish studies in Hebrew. We had Israeli teachers. I came from a home that was, um, was a very Zionist home, not, not Aliyah-oriented per se, but Israel was an important part um, of, uh, of our lives. I went to Hebrew school as in, in, um, in elementary school, and we had... Uh, books about Israel in the house and people visited Israel. Um, I remember the first time that Ariella's grandfather and grandmother, my uncle Shai and Aunt Hilda, came back from a trip from Israel. And it, it was a, this was their first visit. I think it was in 1961. And it made a big impression on us. Um, and um, I studied here. I, I attended Yeshiva University. And for my junior year, I studied in, in Israel, I went at first to an American program and decided that I, I would prefer going to an Israeli program. So I moved to, to an Israeli yeshiva. That was after having volunteering, having volunteered in an Israeli town in the north, what they call a development town, and volunteering there over the summer, and then going to an Israeli yeshiva. And I just couldn't really picture my life without living in Israel. And I married the right girl and we wanted very, very much to raise our children here. We came here in our late twenties with um, one little girl, two, two years old, expecting another. And the, our other three children were born here. It hasn't always been easy in many, many ways, but uh, it's it's been good. And it's been an amazing place. I, I was right. I mean, it's an amazing place to raise children. And it's, it's an amazing place to be Jewish. I mean, if, you, if a person wants to have an intensive Jewish life in any, any sort of Jewish life, 
whether it's secular or, or, or orthodox, um, Israel is the place that one can live a, a more natural and a more organic and more full Jewish life. Clearly, Judaism for both of you is a central part of your lives. And I'm getting the feeling that you can be Jewish better in Israel than in America. That there's something about the environment there that allows you to... Embrace your Judaism. Yeah. I mean, maybe... 1,000%. Can you define what that is? Is it because there are so many other Jews there? Is it the harshness that it is that you're going through? What, what is it that makes your Judaism more worthwhile in Israel than in America? I mean, there's so many things, it's hard to pick. Where I live, one of the, the paths actually out into some green area is called Derech Avot, the path of our um, fathers. And it is archaeologically proven that it's literally, it, it's the path that Jews took from the south of Israel towards the temple. And there are ritual baths along the way. And, and according to tradition, I don't know if this is proven archaeologically, it's the path that Abraham took um, to, to sacrifice his son. And there's a point in our town that um, one of the founders of our town says that's the, this is the point where, the, where Abraham told his helper Eliezer, stay here, um, we're going to keep going. I mean, we're literally walking in the all the stuff that you learn about in the Bible. But the calendar here also is Jewish. I mean, in the supermarket, you can feel the holidays that are coming. Our work schedule being Sunday to Thursday allows us to get ready for Shabbat on Friday with so much more patience and grace. Because of my work as a lactation consultant, a lot of my the people I've come in contact to, with are very secular. A very very different background than I do, not just because they're Israeli, but also um, don't don't keep Shabbat, don't keep kosher, all of those um, things, and and even they, their the rhythm of their lives is Jewish because those are the national holidays here, and they speak Hebrew too, right? And we're my son. I mean, it's amazing. I grew I grew up. I also went to day school. Like when we were, my father was a, he's a rabbi, and my grandfather. Um, was a rabbi. And so we were very synagogue based. I can um, deepen my bones. I have the liturgy from, uh, from very, from being very, very young, but I didn't really understand it. But my son, it's his spoken language. Basically, America is a Christian country and everything right. resides around mostly Christian kind of timings. Uh, and the idea of a weekend being <clears throat> Friday and Saturday rather than Saturday and Sunday that's huge. We see in the stores costumes getting ready for Halloween, a pagan holiday. Right. But it's great that Halloween is before Purim because we just and... today went and bought on clearance yeah. <laughs> uh, costumes that will be shipped to us for Purim. There you go. <laughs> and you get less expensive, right? We should make a commercial for Amazon at this point. There you go. <laughs> this is where it's happening. It's part of it's part of the fabric of life here. And... Um, yeah, just a little example. If you look at a, a bus on the days before the holiday, you know, usually they have the destination of the bus up in LED lights on the over the over the window. It says here it says Chag Sameach, Happy Holiday in Hebrew. 
and before the holidays, or or on a Friday, sometimes it says Shabbat Shalom. That's you know that's a, a special thing. But I think I, I feel it's a tremendous privilege for me to live here. Um, even though lately uh, I can say that my eyes are filled with filled with tears several times a day. Um, and speaking of the buses, Nachum, what's the quote they have on the seats where elderly people usually? Right, they say Vatakum. Rise before the aged, <laughs> and that's it's a verse from the Bible, and an ordinary Israeli looks at it, and he understands it that there's a mitzvah when an, when um, an elderly person gets on the um, gets on the bus that you have to give them a seat. You're listening to Bar Crow Radio podcast today, not at a bar, but on Zoom. We're talking with two Israeli Jews about their lives in the land they dearly love. We next asked about their choice to live in towns located in the West Bank. Now, we acknowledge that for many, West Bank is loaded with negative ideas and feelings. But arguing a stance is not our goal. Rather, we're asking about the human decision a young couple makes to raise a family in a certain place at a certain time. A choice of where to live could be political, but we do not feel that was the case for these two people. Why did I come here? Frankly, because I didn't see any reason not to. Uh, we moved into a community that was going to be built. It did not involve, the building of this community um, did not involve expelling Palestinian Arabs. That would be something that I would feel very uncomfortable about. It was an area that the land was officially owned by the Jordanian government, which had illegally taken possession. And um, I had no problem coming to live here in a community that was going to be to be built, that while even though it had its political future may not have not been resolved, practically, uh, I knew that this would be a nice place to live, and I've lived in the same place, in the same home, since 1986, and um, it's a good place to live. Right. And on the whole, we have fairly good relations with the Arabs who live around uh, in the area, and um, I can't say entirely without any problems, but... Um, on the whole, we have we have good, let's say, quiet relations with them. Ariella, you also are. You said you're kind of on the border of the West Bank. Uh, I live, I think, equidistant from Jerusalem as Nachum does. Okay, just in a different direction. Okay. Um, if you there's always traffic, but if you drove in the middle of the night when there's no traffic from my house to the hotel, the Western Wall. It would take about 25 minutes. I live in a town called Neve Daniel. Um, it also was not founded in any way, um, in a way that displaced any Arabs. Um, we have Arab towns nearby that have flourished because of the economic success that the Jews have brought and the economic opportunities that the Jews have brought to the area. I picked it because my husband was, when, when I met my husband, Chlomo, he was studying in yeshiva. He did not grow up religious. 
he was studying in yeshiva to sort of catch up on all the Jewish learning that he hadn't done previously. And then when he went to into the high tech professional world, which is what he had done in America, we had to move. We, amazingly, they didn't want us to stay in the dorms. So mm. we um, we moved and I didn't want to move very far from where we had been because I had just we'd been married for nine months. I just learned the supermarket I like and found a doctor and a dentist and all of those things. And I didn't want to move too far. So we said wanted to stay on the same in the same area. And there were two communities that seemed like they might fit our basic criteria. And we came here for a weekend and we knew kind of knew some people and had a nice time and moved in uh, 18 and a half years ago. And, and that's it. We're here. I didn't want to, for convenience, because of all the things I had learned, but also I wanted to be close to Jerusalem to have all the access that a city has. Okay. Um, but I knew I was a suburban girl. I wasn't a city girl. Quite, quite norm, quite kind of ordinary decision. You know. Very ordinary. Yeah. But, um, and, and the consensus in Israel, I don't think um, anybody but the most extreme left-wing people really have any any notion that Ma'aladumim, where Nahum lives, or Gush Etzion, where I live, are going to be part of a future Palestinian state. Mm-hmm. They'll be if I could just add. If it ever if I... happens, what? if we ever miraculously have a, part, a, a true partner for peace, which is really a pipe dream as far as I'm concerned at this point, um, there'll be land swaps. We'll give the Palestinians a different area instead of this area. Um, And I can tell you that um, the Palestinians who work in my town until the beginning of the war, the Palestinians are no longer allowed in our town, um, which is... It's unfortunate. causes such mixed emotions. It makes a lot of sense because we're terrified. Um, We have a a gardener. That sounds to me very upscale. But we have a guy who mows our lawn and trims our bushes. And he's become a family friend over the years. And he sends us the most beautiful voice messages before our holidays, wishing us well. And um, and he's a lovely guy. And I worry about him because I haven't reached out to him because I, I don't know what I would do with the information if he told me that his family is starving because his livelihood was cut off on October 7th. Um, I don't have the means to support him. Um, beyond, I mean, I, I don't even have the means to support him when he's not doing work. We we are going to have to find somebody else to do that that yard work. He seemed like a good guy. I really, really, genuinely think he's a good guy. And the communities of the South that were attacked on October seventh, um, the Hamas was aided by some of those quote unquote good guys who were working there regularly and told them told of the terrorists who is going to be home and which house has leaves their door unlocked and and all of the all sorts of little details and how do i know if he's really a good guy after you hear stories like that i, I just don't know you should i should also mention that 99% of the building in our community was done by palestinian construction workers they right they decided next week actually they are going to let them in with extra security. And it's a very, very controversial issue here mm. because you don't want to, to give a potential terrorist a jackhammer or 
uh, I don't know what other construction tools you need that could become weapons quite easily, especially in a town where kids are allowed to roam free. You see, our friendships and our relationships and their livelihoods are victims of terror. A friend who had a Palestinian who was a, her, cleaned their house, and they did call the families that, whose houses they cleaned and said, my children are starving. And um, my friends brought them food. Not, they did, they're not allowed to go into, those Pal into Palestinian towns. There are actually giant red signs that say, if you're Israeli, um, you, are in you would in be endangering your life by going in at the entrance of Palestinian towns, but they met them on a main road and brought them food. This, this, sound, this sounds just horrible. I mean, you have people that you know, Palestinians, that you had, you know, some minor relationship with, and, and yet you don't know, the, you, you know them, but you don't know them. Even before the war, um, we talked about the danger in, in Israel, in my town, if you have more than one Palestinian um, worker, and that all of these roles have changed, you have to have a guard with a gun. If you have a Palestinian and, and worker. If, to have more than one Palestinian worker, a team of Palestinian You workers. also have to have a guard with a gun. Yes. And the idea was, I said, I always said, I know this guy, he's a good guy. I mean, that's what I thought I knew. But if a terrorist came to his house in the morning in his town and said, if you don't tell us which houses we can go into to kill people, if you don't plant a bomb in the playgrounds, if you don't, I don't know what horrible nightmares kind of things you can do, we're going to kill your whole family. Yep. Then I, I imagine if I were him, I would do it. Yep. This is where your imagination is. This is where your thoughts are. I mean, this yeah. is this is where and, and it was from before. This yeah. is, I mean, yeah. October seventh made it worse. Yeah. But we always I... kind of knew that it was a very delicate relationship because the Palestinian culture um, has been so corrupted, and and over so many years, they're just their education system and their so many different elements have been training them to hate Jews. Nahum, do you have anything to add to what Ariel I was can, saying? I, I can add. I mean, I had relationships with um, with Arabs who worked in the library where I worked, mm -hmm. and we were, you know, were very, very friendly, very warm relationships. These were These were basically Palestinian Arabs, I also had relations with Israeli Arabs, and I'll speak to you about that separately. But um, they're no longer working there, and I feel bad for them because um, I, it's hard for me to believe that these people would do anything violent or hateful. We had very warm relationships. We, um, talking about the staff, uh, one of the, the Arab workers, maintenance worker, um, lost a son, and I think we gave him a lot of emotional support um, in that time. I mean, I certainly talked to him a lot about what he was going through, and um, it's, um, it's 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 I think I see these people as victims of Arab terror because they can't come to work, they can't um, they can't make the kind of living that they were they were making. And um, it's just too bad. It's just too bad. Uh, in terms of 
we had a, also a situation in the library where there are, you know, there are Israeli Arabs who are Israeli citizens. Uh, they um, they have they can vote. They can serve. Some of them do serve in the army. They're given. They're usually exempt, but some of them can volunteer. Uh, they there are Arab Israelis who are in the Knesset in our parliament. There are Arab Israelis who are um, on the on the uh, Supreme Court. So they're part. They're really part of the fabric of Israeli society. There's a medical school in Abu Dis. Abu Dis is under the control of the Palestinian Authority, but there's a medical school there that is taught by. Um, mostly foreign professors. There are Palestinian students, in other words, Arabs who do not have Israeli citizenship, but there are also a number of Israeli Arab students. We live very close to there. Male Dumim is right near there. The Israeli Arabs can come into Male Dumim freely. Um, we can't go into certain places under Palestinian Authority control, but they can come into Male Dumim because they're Israeli citizens, just like me. And there was a group of young men who came and they were using our library because they claimed that the library there was noisy and um, they needed a place to study. I got to know these young men. They were exceptionally fine people from the, um, from the Galilee. They're the same age as my sons. Any family would be proud to have sons like this. Mm -hmm. Well-mannered, intelligent, altruistic. My second grandson was born and they very sweetly brought me a cake well the cake was bought at an arab bakery and wasn't kosher even though the baker told them it was kosher and uh, we had an interesting conversation i said look if um, i know that arabs are very um they have a big sense of pride and losing face and things like that and so i told them i said look we're good friends if I wanted to play the game of kavod, of respect, I would take the cake with a big smile and then get rid of it as soon as possible. I said, I'm not going to do that. Um, we're good friends. We're going to take a picture of you giving the cake to me, and then I'm going to give it to you to share with your friends in honor of um, my grandson's birth. They gave me a big hug. They were thrilled with that. And years afterwards, I, I would send them holiday greetings and they would send me holiday greetings. These are the kind of people that I believe uh, are important, important for us to have that bridge with. Maybe I still have the, um, the phone number of, of one of them. And I'm thinking maybe before Ramadan, I'll send him a, um, a greeting for a Ramadan Karim or a, uh, to a, a blessed month of Ramadan. I have to see uh, if I feel up to it or not. Wow, Nahum um, and, and Ariella. Um, this, I mean, it seems so hopeless, but you speak like that. And it's really about humans to human. It's just, we're all human. We all love. We all want to live. We all want to be happy. That, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if... Well, those people you're talking of, about. The people that I, I believe that there are Arabs who are like that. And I want to have a good relationship with those people. Okay. And I want to be open to them. Um, and I believe that eventually 
that there will be changes in the world and that that will be the the norm rather than perhaps the exception i was mentioning before that i drive this um man from our town to dialysis and pick him up sometimes and the dialysis clinic is a tremendous example i mean i think most medical facilities in israel are of coexistence there are arabs and and jews and jews of every possible type and the staff my the guy who i picked up had a medical emergency a few weeks ago when i picked him up and there was an arab nurse with a, or a muslim nurse i mean she was wearing a hijab and jews all a russian jew and they were all working side by side to get him back up back uh in condition to, to get to my car and go home and i just said to one i said to the to the arab nurse i said you know this gives me like a little glimmer of hope that we really can all work together for the greater good. And she said, oh, my national, like, that doesn't mean anything. I'm a nurse. That's everything, though. You're a nurse. You're but, yeah, That's your job. Yeah, I, I can tell you we have my, um, my wife, Bracha, is recovering from knee surgery, and she had a doctor's visit. A doctor came to the house. A young Arab man seemed to be very competent and very nice and very pleasant and very, very helpful. And I know that um, her sister, my sister-in-law, uh, lives in a in a home with um, for for handicapped people, and one of the attendants there is uh, an Arab woman from Abu Ghosh, which is a an Arab Israeli town that was pro-Israel even before Israel was founded. Um, she, this young woman, her name is most wonderful young lady, responsible, intelligent, loving, caring. Uh, the only problem is that she wants to go to law school and she's not going to continue working there indefinitely. Mm. We see people like this. We know there are Arabs that are fine people and that are good people and that we are proud and happy that they're part of the fabric of our society. We're not talking about hatred of, of Arabs as a group or something like that. We're talking about the difficulty of living with a certain political culture um, and a certain mindset that is, is set on destroying us. Nahum, you wrote us that you were saying Kaddish for a young person murdered on October 7th. Can you tell us about this choice? Can you talk about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the normal course of the world, people die when they're old. And they leave their children, and their children will miss them, and their children say Kaddish after them. And that's the, the normal course of events. And the, um, the, the massacre of Simchat Torah uh, on October 7th, there were many, many young people who were at a huge music festival. And um, between them and the people in the communities around the Gaza Strip, around Gaza, um, they 1200 people were murdered and someone came up with an idea that um it's called in hebrew kaddish the kol kadosh kaddish for every holy one we call the martyr people who are martyrs holy people and um so my daughter who usually knows exactly uh what the what the the best and and um, and right thing to do is 
sent me a message and said, Abba, I think this is for you. And so she sent me the link to the organization. I saw it and my eyes filled with tears. I mean, it was, um, so it's, it struck such an emotional uh, note to me. And so I sent in my name and my details and they sent back a picture of a handsome young man with curly brown hair and beautiful eyes, um, 26 years old. And his name was Liam. And I immediately wrote back and I wrote a short note to his family um, that I would consider it a tremendous privilege to say Kaddish for this young man. And um, I know that, that his father tries to say Kaddish, but I'm, I'm there for backup right. if, he, if he misses it sometimes. Yeah. And uh, to me, it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a very emotional experience and it's a very spiritual experience. You have children that served Nahum in, in the IDF, in right. Israeli Defense uh, Force. Um, what is that feeling for you? It's, um, it's a feeling of tremendous pride. It's a feeling of um, constant worry. On one hand, it's, it's a great privilege. Um, I'll just recount a little story about somebody else's son, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I was giving a ride to my neighbor's son, really a very, a very sweet kid in his early 20s, barely talks, very quiet, a very, um, a very refined young man. Um, he sits, he and his father sit in the row behind me in shul and synagogue. And I gave him a ride and we talked a little bit and he talked to me, he told me a little bit about the, uh, what was going on. And I said, I'm gonna tell you something and I want you to tell your friends. First of all, we owe a tremendous moral debt to you because you're putting your lives on the line so that we can live normal lives. Secondly, we pray for you every day and third, we, lo we love you beyond words. Can I add something? My son is 18, so in 12th grade, so he's not in army. In Israel, there's mandatory service. And in this war, pretty much everyone on my street, pretty much everyone has a son or a husband who was called up, um, including many young families with kids, with very small kids. And because we have mandatory service, these kids that I've known since they were toddlers, since they were born, are deep in Gaza fighting this war for us. And on the north, putting their lives on the line. And they're not my children. It's not the same at all kind of emotional experience it is for Nahum. But the whole country is worrying about those kids. I, I had uh, one more question. And then after that, I'm going to say, was there something we didn't ask you that we should have? But well, my question is here, and I'm not concerned here with how uh, this happens, but I'm literally looking at your feelings, your gut feeling here, and your sense um, of who the Palestinians are and the Arabs are, and we've gotten some of that in this conversation. Will this conflict ever, ever end? It has to. It can't go on forever. It can't go on forever. Um, evil 
never lasts forever. Something will change because it has to change. And I'm, I'm optimistic about the future. As, as one rabbi here said, we know that in the end, things will be good. The problem is we're in the middle. One of my um, favorite quotes is by David Ben-Gurion, who was the first prime minister of Israel. And he said, in Israel, in order to be a realist, you must believe in miracles. I can't see how it's going to happen, but um, I don't believe that Israel would exist without the hand of God here. We won wars against all odds. You hear stories about rockets that were headed towards high populist areas and just suddenly diverted their route, like God stuck his hand down and moved them. I, like I said, I can't, I can't understand how it's possible, but I have to believe that there some, some miraculous way we will find a solution to this. It's going to take dramatic change, mm -hmm. but anything is possible. I'm going to give you a picture, okay? I'm going to draw a picture for you, a verbal picture. Um, and I think it, it sort of like sums up life right now here in Israel. Our youngest granddaughter was born about seven weeks ago. Her name is Sophia, and she's, uh, she's a real sweetie. And um, my son was given leave from the army to come for the birth. Of course, he missed it by 10 minutes, but that's okay. And we went to see him the next day. And we went to the hospital, and he comes out with his uh with the baby in a, in a bassinet on wheels carrying a grenade launcher and he sort of said sheepishly i didn't have any place else to put it and from there actually we walked across herzl boulevard to the funeral of one of our friends a neighbor's son who fell in gaza a uh, a gifted young man who was a student of philosophy and Talmud and working in high tech and had just had um, his third child about uh, three months ago. So it's, um, we're, we're living on a roller coaster. Good things happen and amazing things happen and terrible things happen. But the future is, in, I think, in that we have these little children that these, these are our future. And, um, it's a tremendous consolation and a tremendous promise of, of good things to come ahead. We want to thank Nachum Schnitzer and Ariella Dubrowen for joining us for this conversation and for sharing a sense of their lives in Israel today. Alan and I tried for a human conversation that avoided judgment and anger and sought sympathetic connection to lean into where another person is standing, despite possible disagreements. In our dangerous and divisive world, acknowledging lives lived and emotions felt, especially when we disagree, must be mutually practiced. And thank you to Carlton Holmes for his performance of Duke Ellington's Single Petal of a Rose at a Composer's Concordance concert in 2018.
folks. We are happy to be sponsored by Magic Mind, a mental performance shot of fabulous ingredients. On our last podcast, I talked about organic ashwagandha, one of the ingredients in this magic elixir. Check it out. Today, I'm going to talk to you about another ingredient in Magic Mind, rhodiola rosea. According to the National Institutes of Health, rhodiola rosea has a long history of use in traditional medicine to stimulate the nervous system, treat stress-induced fatigue and depression, enhance physical performance and work productivity, and treat gastrointestinal ailments. While these claims are based on historical usage, check out the Magic Mind website. They have linked to the National Institutes of Health medical studies confirming the efficacy of rhodiola rusia. Get 20% off your next order of Magic Mind by using the code BARCRAWL20. That's all in caps, B-A-R-C-R-A-W-L-2-0 at magicmind.com forward slash barcrawl. And Alan and I would love to hear what you think of our programming at barcrawlradio at gmail.com.